Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our guests and guest hosts, or you can rate, review, or share the show wherever it makes sense to do so. You can stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram at autofocuslit. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter, which we'll be sending out in January 2024. This will keep you informed about the podcast, of course, but also about our books and upcoming submission calls for the imprint and online journal. To sign up, you can go right now to autofocuslit.com email. And finally... If you like the show to the point that you'd like to represent it on a t-shirt, we have one available for order in our online store, along with our books at autofocuslit.com books. All right, that's my advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Coming up very soon, you'll hear me in conversation with Benjamin Nespajani. Benjamin Nespajani is the author of the poetry collection No Further Than the End of the Street from OK Donkey Press, the novella in one-act plays Cardboard Clouds from the new press at X-Ray Lit Mag, and two chat books. His work has been featured in Fence, Crazy Horse, Fairy Tale Review, Salt Hill, and other journals. He also runs the record label and blog, Neon Pajamas. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Benjamin Nespajani. Sure, yeah, so uh, I've been living in Chicago for nine years now going on 10 next year um and when i first got here i was working at the university of chicago library um, and i was there for about eight and a half years um, and then my day-to-day now is just a huge mixture of music industry stuff and trying to do music marketing and release campaigns and write-ups about albums um, so fully immersed in the music world kind of during the day and then by night and on weekends, I try to do some extra writing on the side. Um, but yeah, I think everything always kind of started with music. Music's kind of where it always began from like message boards um, in middle school until now. So it's cool to finally uh, have it pay the bills, but it's been a long time coming from, you know, the occasional free blog posts to helping somebody on a Spotify bio um, to where I am now. So yeah, so let, let's talk about that a bit, um, maybe partly because I'm interested in if I could steal anything you've done in music for book publishing. <laughs> <laughs> but why don't you, I guess, tell me a bit about your labels called Neon Pajamas, right? Right. So there's that. And then tell me about, I guess, how that's worked into all the other work you're doing in the music industry. Right, right. Yeah. And we were talking about the pronunciation of my last name. So when I was in middle school, my friend's dad couldn't pronounce Nes Pajani, didn't know what it was. So he started calling me Neon Pajamas uh, just out of nowhere. Uh, and that name is kind of stuck over all these years. So for a long time, it was, uh, you know, an AOL Instagram or AOL handle. Um, and then it was an Instagram handle. And then it was a .com. And then I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll start blogging on my website. And then it kind of turned into, okay, maybe I'll start curating music releases. Um, so it's had many different shapes over the years. Um, but it's always kind of been just me, I guess, um, behind the curtain. Um, but yeah, always kind of music focused from the beginning. And then as I've aged, I've kind of got more into flash fiction and prose poetry and creative writing and stuff like that. Um, but from the very beginning, it was almost always talking about the, a new EP or instrumental music, uh, largely hip hop focused, largely instrumental beats, that kind of thing. Um, and then tiptoeing into like lo-fi study beats and like those 24 seven YouTube channels, um, and those kind of visualizers. But, um, I think it kind of all stemmed from college where I was just looking for instrumental music that wasn't too distracting that I could kind of get some work done. So I really started finding like my favorite hip hop albums and then looking through like BitTorrent and Mediafire and LimeWire and all those platforms to find like the instrumental rips or Kanye West instrumental albums. Um, and then from there, I kind of just spiraled like, oh, wow, there's beat tapes. Oh, wow, there's people that are only making beats, you know. 
Um, so that whole thing kind of really opened the doors. And then from there, I think it was enough noise for me to really start writing and kind of like not have silence, but not also be distracted by like heavy lyrics. So, so, and this is all curation. So you're not making any or have at some point. In yeah. The process, not, uh, like, I feel like at some point maybe you got, yeah, not, <laughs> not, not really musically skilled at all. Um, just kind of really enjoyed listening. So I've always been kind of behind the scenes. Um, if I, I do the same thing now with writing, but if I really like an album, if I really like an artist, I like to interview them, you know, and look under the hood and talk about the album or talk about a certain song. Uh, when I first got to Chicago, I was like a hundred percent music journalism, going to shows, being in the green room, talking to rappers, talking to producers. Um, so that has, that passion has always kind of been there to be part of what's going on, but never actually making music or anything like that. I tried like trumpet in middle school, hated it. I tried uh, <laughs> guitar lessons for like three months, hated it. Um, but I've always been interested in listening and kind of, uh, yeah, either covering an album or talking to the artists or, um, yeah, helping out with their creative direction behind the scenes. All that stuff really interests me. Yeah. So, okay. That's a little more about that too. Like, so you, you're digging, you're digging, you're digging, you're finding these artists who are making, uh, this like specific kind of music. And in this world, I imagine a lot of it's kind of like online communities. I mean, maybe a bit like right. ours. Terminally online. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then when you find an artist that you think is, you know, works with the, would work with the label or that you, you want to help, like, what is that? What is it like? Like, what are you helping them do? I, I mean, you mentioned, I guess, I mean, production and direction maybe, um, but but getting the music out there and listened to and marketed. Yeah, I guess like how, like what's the whole, what would be like the process of you working with an artist to do, you know, what you're doing with the label? Right, yeah. So, I mean, over the years, it's really um, been across the board. I've done everything from um, an artist team and their management will hit me up and they'll say, hey, we have a new single. We'd love for you to premiere it on this blog. Um, I was helping out with various kind of blogs and in like the cloud rap world was like 2012, 2013, 2014, I'm really diving in that. So at first it was, you know, being available to, to write a review, being available to premiere the song, giving it a sneak peek. Um, and then from there, there was a streetwear label in New York um, and they had like a music blog on the side and then that turned into a music label. So I took over that. It was called Mishka. Um, so helping out on that front. And that was a lot more okay, I really like this producer. I really like the music that they're releasing. Let me email them, see if they have five songs available, 10 songs available. Uh, and then you'd work through the track listing and find the art. Um, and then now as it's progressed, that was a lot more like DIY, 50 bucks under the table, trying to scrape by, figuring it out, all the while working at the library and kind of making my money there. Um, and now it's more of a fully finished project comes to me and then they might need help finding an animator or finding an illustrator to accompany the YouTube video or help with the press release or sending it out to publicists um, for that aspect or yeah, helping with track listing or really wanting to be premiering and really wanting to be blog focused. So we kind of lean in that direction or wanting to clean up their Spotify and seeing, you know, what a banner looks like, what a bio looks like, what song should be, should be front and center. Um, yeah, it's really across the board and kind of a case by case basis. But um, at this point, it's kind of just leaning into what the artist wants to do, what they're comfortable doing. Um, if they want to be really active on Bandcamp and that's their main focus, then we go that route. Um, if they want to be on TikTok, we can help out with that as well. Um, but it always started kind of with writing and then a little bit of kind of the creative vision behind it and seeing like, okay, we can clean this up. This could actually look a little bit better. Let's make sure the specs for the square art are proper. Um, so kind of just having that like serious attention to detail, um, but almost always the artist at least has a finished project or a close to finished project before I kind of touch it at this point. Yeah. So you're a connector of all paths and avenues. <laughs> Try to be. In this world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think uh, at this point, I've done a little bit of everything when it comes to like the ins and outs of, yeah, of the music industry, but almost largely um, in this kind of instrumental hip hop space. You know, I haven't done too much with like singer songwriters or viral mainstream pop hits, like nothing like that really. Mm -hmm. Um let's i want to go kind of way back and then back to <laughs> where we're talking about you know where the i guess more about kind of childhood and maybe the love of music or reading and writing if if it was big for you or when that developed you know because it's it's interesting like the i think i think you said and correct me if i'm misremembering it like 
you were always interested in music and the writing came out of that. But like when you started the label, it's like a lot of the beginning of that was wrapped up in writing. So it seems like it's very kind of intertwined. Right. And, and yeah, I guess, yeah. Take me all the way back and then, <laughs> and then take me forward again. Yeah, I'm trying That's to think of when. Here. I mean, the writing definitely came first. And I think it was just from certain classes in elementary school that I always really enjoyed it, always reading books. Um, there was some contest when we were in like third or fourth grade where if you read enough books, you got enough stickers and then you could get a free pizza at Pizza Hut. And that was like mm -hmm. the oh, pinnacle, yeah. as you well know. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> so from there, I think I've always just been kind of a really um, avid reader, always had a book in the backpack from that early age. Um, and I think in middle school is really when we'd like visit my uncle and he just has like hundreds and hundreds of CDs lining his house. And I would just go through all of them and any duplicates that I found, he would let me take home. So I'd be like, oh my gosh. And, you know, he would have so many CDs that he would just have duplicates, you know. So because of that, I found out about Sublime and Chili Peppers, Californication. And, you know, I'm 13, uh -huh. 12, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. It's prime age. Right, right. <laughs> For that. Yeah, um, yeah. And learning about like concept albums and, you know, mm. that, that kind of thing was like, oh my gosh, there's a story within this album. And somebody wrote that down. And, okay, that's really cool. Um, and I think that really started it. And then I was kind of going into message boards. I found out about the flaming lips around that era um, and just kind of like opened up all these doors into like good music mixed with like a concept or mixed with like this, not a restraint or a constraint, but like, yeah, it's just a concept project. Okay. This is, um, there's a band, the Mars Volta and one of the theories, about, or one of the mm -hmm. stories behind one of their albums is that they were cleaning up someone's house that had passed away and they found like this old diary from someone that was um, mute. Um, and then from there, they kind of wrote this album based around finding this old diary from a house. Um, so I love that kind of thing. I think that really like kickstarted it. So cool music on top of a cool concept. Um, I think I kind of just dove, dove in head first. So from there, yeah, I was doing admin on message boards when I was 14, 15. Um, and mm -hmm. then from high school, I started doing like album reviews, movie reviews for my local, um, for my high school paper. Um, and then college, I did the same thing. I went for, for journalism, focusing on music journalism. Um, working for the school paper, all that stuff. Um, but it was always journalism focused and always kind of like talking about what I enjoyed, what I was listening to, what I was watching, always very kind of entertainment focused. And I guess it still is. Um, but it wasn't until I started working at the University of Chicago Library that I found out about like poetry that I was actually accessible and surrealism and flash fiction and prose poems and that really condensed brief um, writing style that I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I knew about like five or six page short stories. I thought those were the best things ever because I could have that attention. But then I was like, oh my gosh, you know, Zach Schomburg is telling this whole world in a hundred words. This is incredible, you know? So from there, it really, really opened up the creative writing world. Um, but always all along the lines, all the whole time I was always been kind of, you know, finding out what the new album is, trying to write about it, trying to cover it. Um, yeah, always kind of a, intertwined mixture of uh, poetry and music journalism. Yeah. And so how did you get involved at the library? You're just like, I like books. I want to work at the library. You went and got a job and worked there for yeah. years. Or was there, <laughs> is there anything beyond? Is that, is that the That's story? That's pretty much the story. Yeah. So I did, um, after college, I did two years of Peace Corps um, and I would live down in Ecuador. And it was during that time that I was really starting to like do blogging and stuff. It's funny that I was like reviewing rap albums in Chicago when I'm down in Machala, Ecuador for two years with like spotty internet. <laughs> Um, but right. that was when like ASAP Rocky was coming out and Flatbush Zombies and Main Attractions and like this very like, as we were saying, like terminally online rappers and that whole community of like hip hop was just like only on like the blogs and stuff like that. It was really exciting. Um, so around that time, you know, I'm isolated from most Spanish or most English speakers. Um, I'm kind of in this little island, not on an actual island, but, you know, kind of on my own for the first time, living alone for the first time. Um, so I just started writing like crazy when I was out there. Um, tried my attempt at a really bad like Peace Corps experience book, like memoir type thing. It's so long and so uh -huh. bad. Um, I'm glad that I have it, but nobody will ever see it. Um, right. And then from there, when I came back, you know, because I had that interest, I'm like, oh my gosh, hip hop is so cool. I was like, do I want to go to grad school? No, I don't really think so. I thought about going to Denver. I actually got into University of Denver. Um, for communications. And then I was looking at the music scene out there and I was like, oh, it's all EDM and like jam bands. And I, I couldn't do it, you uh -huh. know, no, no disrespect to Denver. Uh -huh. um, and then I heard about, you know, I was listening and I was like more and more Chicago was popping up and I'm from Northern Indiana. So it's about two and a half hours from here, two hours from there. Um, so it was just kind of close enough to home. And I don't want to say I was homesick, but I was kind of like, oh man, it wouldn't be bad to go back to the Midwest. It's been two years. Um, so I was 
I knew I wasn't going to go back to Indiana and I knew I wanted to go to Chicago. Um, and I knew I liked reading a lot and writing a lot. So yeah, I just applied to every single campus library that had a position. So I applied to DePaul, Loyola, uh, U of I, U Chicago, Northwestern, uh, and U Chicago got back to me and I got a job and I was there for a little less than a decade. Yeah. Wow. Um, and what brought you to the, the Peace Corps? What, what kind of compelled you? Yeah, that was another one where I had the serious travel bug um, and it kind of just slowly but surely um, came to fruition. So at first I did, I think it was four weeks um, in Mexico one summer, the first summer that I was in after college or after my freshman year. Um, so I did a summer immersion program in Guadalajara. And then that like was like, oh my gosh, I lived with the host family. I thought it was so cool. I learned Spanish. You learn it so quickly when you have to speak it. Um, and that was just super exciting. So from there, I'm like, okay, I want to do a semester abroad. So I went to Barcelona. Um, and then when I got back after that, I was working in Olive Garden in Mishawaka, Indiana. And I was like, man, I just did Mexico. I just did Spain. I'm in Mishawaka, Indiana. I got to get the hell out of here. Um, so yeah, I was looking at World Teach. I was looking at Peace Corps. Um, I was just trying to find anything that could get me away. Um, and because I had the Spanish um, experience, I think that's why they placed me in Ecuador. But yeah, it was three months of training. And then two years after that on site, um, and it was probably the best two years of my life or definitely the best two years of my life. I don't think anything really compares to that. Wow. Um, and then I guess so at some point <laughs> you start, I guess, publishing, uh, and then you had like a boatload of chat books. Right. Right. Um, and I wonder, I guess if you would talk about kind of inching into from one community into this other one, uh, and then, you know, making a life in it. And, you know, we're going to talk about the two, you know, full lengths in a minute. And at some point we'll re return back to concept albums. Cause that was a huge thing I wrote down to talk to you about. <laughs> Cause there's a huge link with your books in that, but for, yeah, talk a bit about kind of going, you know, I guess coming back and working at the library and then starting to focus on, sitting down and writing. Sure. Yeah. So I think I was in Ecuador 2011 to 2013. So I got to Chicago in 2013. So yeah, I guess it has been a decade at this point. Wow. September 1st. Um, so yeah, we're coming up on a decade. Exactly. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, at the time, like I said, it was full on music journalism, covering rappers. I wanted to come to Chicago and be at every show. Um, so I was going to constant concerts, covering on these blogs, um, mostly doing it all for free, just trying to get my name out there. I was like, doing tiny little internships, which basically just meant like post all my blog ideas because I don't have the energy to do it. Um, so all of that stuff, I was just very hungry and I didn't really care um, because the University of Chicago Library was paying the bill so I could have a little bit of fun time. Um, and at, when I first started, I was working the night shift at the library. So I was working from 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. Um, and all these kids around me are studying or students, I guess they weren't kids. Um, all these students are studying. So you, I would you know, be at an interview or be at a session or, or reviewing an album or have all this work to do. And I would get to the library and after about 90 minutes of check-ins and making sure the student workers are on time and doing their thing, you can really just sit back and relax at that job, especially in the late hours. And because everyone around you is studying, you almost feel this urge to like be productive. Um, so I had coworkers that would just go through an entire Netflix series on the clock and I just couldn't do that. I was like, okay, I need to write about this album. I want to interview this guy. I'm going to cold call this person. Um, and as I guess, I don't know if it was just age or just doing it too often, but, you know, after three, four or five years of that, of really um, just doing focusing on music, I think I was just finding out, like I said, like tiny little prose poems, tiny little flash fictions. I think that was just sneaking in more and more because I was at the library, because I could do interlibrary loan. Um, they have 4.5 million books at that library. So literally anything that I would find online or any podcast I would listen to, I'd like type it into our catalog and be like, oh, that book's upstairs or that book was just returned. It's down in the basement. Let me go grab it. Um, so from there, you know, I always had about 60 to 100 books checked out. My drawers were just full, um, unlimited renewals. So it just got really messy because I didn't really have to return anything. Um, and from there, yeah, just kind of, it's funny when I first started finding out about like submittable and submitting stuff and writing stuff, um, I thought like, oh my God, my social platforms, like everyone's thinks of me as like music stuff and it's very hip hop focused and I'm about to share like my first poem. And I was like, people are not gonna understand this or they're not gonna be into it or it's uh -huh. like two very different worlds, you know? And I think over time it's just slowly kind of transitioned. Whereas now 
when I share a rap album or I share music on my Twitter, people are like, oh, I only, I'm only following him for the poetry. It feels right. like, you know, whereas five or six <laughs> uh -huh. years ago, I think it was the complete opposite. So it's interesting to kind of see that transition. Um, so yeah, I don't do too much music writing public facing because it's a lot of like behind the scenes press write-ups and write-ups about the albums. Um, but I think being at the library and maybe getting a little too old for hip hop as I got older um, and kind of just settling down in Chicago a little bit more, I think that just led to me like really being like, oh my gosh, this is something that I can continue writing and it's not about something else that I'm enjoying, it's about me. Um, and it was super terrifying at first, of course, but now that I'm in that spot, it's like so uplifting and enjoyable. But I think it wasn't until, yeah, 2017 or 2018 that I was really like submitted my first piece and was really like, okay, this is a story that I wanna send out um, and really like started, you know, entering that flash fiction world there's a hashtag on Twitter, um, VSS365, and every day mm -hmm. somebody sends a word prompt and you have to send the tweet and it has to include that word. Um, and then you just put the hashtag VSS365 at the end. So very short story, 365. And I think I found out about that either right around submittable or right beforehand. And I would do those every single day. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can tweet a short story today. And then after I had like a couple months of those, I was like, holy cow, I have all these little tiny cool slivers um, looking back, they're probably not that strong, but that was kind of my first entry to be like, if I remove this hashtag, add a couple sentences, I can send this over, you know, um, to OK Donkey or to, you know, to some of those early places, X-Ray, for example, I think 2018, they published me. So that was just really, really exciting. And I wasn't bothered by rejections. I was just like full on submitting like wild. Um, and now it's a lot more like I'll submit every once in a while and I'm a little bit more in my space. Um, but at the beginning, it was just like I have pages and pages and pages of notes and slivers and little snippets and vignettes. And these people are asking for them. This is so cool. So I was just, yeah, sending out wildly. span i think what like a year less than a year there's two full lengths right. um we'll talk a little bit about both and then we'll talk about kind of both um together um let's talk about the new one so the new one's uh cardboard clouds it's uh billed as a novella in one act plays um or like i'd say prose poems around a formal idea right. or a concept as a concept album in a way um you know there's a few characters it, there's like death <laughs> is the main character um it's arranged into sections by the kind of the type of cloud and I, I enjoy those little illustrations on those sections of the cardboard clouds um and like the best way that i can explain this book is that it's like a theater of the absurd and or a theater of language where the thing like that's the tie-in to the formal conceit to me. You know, it takes that form of the like one-act plays, and and purports to be a, a novel. But what's really playing out is how is how you're using language in this uh, performative way. Um, and I think a lot of what you're performing is the language itself, or your own, I guess, imagination, um, or or thinking. So I guess if you would talk about the conception of the book and maybe the process of, of writing it or writing the poems and then maybe when in a mind it was your book, right. <laughs> before the poems came or at some point in the poems, and then maybe also the decision to call it a novella in one act plays as opposed to a prose poetry collection. Um, that's, I'll stop there <laughs> so, so that you can actually answer it. I don't throw many things. Out yeah. There. Theater of the absurd, I think is great. Language heavy is, I think is on perfectly on point. Um, and yeah, the terminology for it is interesting. So at the very beginning, um, I just liked the idea of, I mean, we talked about concept albums and restraint and constraint. I like the idea of boxing myself in because if yeah. I have a blank page, I like, I think I just, I want to throw in the entire town and have 500 characters and 600 objects and all these different things happening. Um, and I think it's just, whenever I've had feedback or worked with other other authors, they'd always be like, dial it back. I think you're saying way too much. Like, I think when I first started, it was just like me wanting to go wild. And this is again, 2018, 2019, still trying to figure it out. Um, so I started this process where I, if I had a blank page, I would just start with the phrase on stage. Um, and I did that religiously for months where I was just on stage, on stage, on stage. Um, and I think in this book, 
probably 95% of the pieces start with on stage. I think I kept most of those. Um, mm -hmm. And what happened was I would tell myself, okay, this is, this has to fit on this stage. It can be abstract or it can be weird, of course, but I really want to keep it down to two, three, four characters tops. And I really want to have like one or two objects. So I'd be like, okay, there's a guy and a girl on stage and there's a crocodile and there's, you know, an inflatable pool and a butcher knife. Um, and I would really <laughs> set those to the side and just kind of run wild and see what I could do. And the instant that I felt that instinct to add new characters or throw in more objects, I would just kind of force myself to not do that. So I really tried to have this minimalistic constraint, even though a lot of strange things are happening within each piece, it's very um, brief and there aren't too many objects. So hopefully you could still maybe try to do some of these plays and they, they might translate to actually stage plays because it's so minimalistic, but they might not translate properly because they would be a little too weird. Um, and the first iterations of these, I think they were closer to prose poetry. And I think this is still prose poetry at the end of the day. Um, but I worked with Jeremy Radin, who's an actor and a playwright and a great poet. Um, and he kind of told me I had a lot of these really weird lines. And he was like, what are these weird lines? Are they stage directions? Are they direct quotes? He's like, because they don't make sense here. It's very lyric driven and it becomes too abstract. And he said, the thing you have to do is ground yourself. And I think the word that he used it as, I think it was the butcher. So he looked at it as you approach all of your pieces with stage plays as the butcher is coming to your play. His wife dragged him there. He knows nothing about theater. How can you keep him entertained? And the instant that you start to have really abstract language and strange words, um, it doesn't make any sense and the stage directions wouldn't make any sense. So he was like, anything that you have that's weird or a strange line that you really wanna keep in, throw it in quotes, have someone shout it, have someone on stage yell it, and it makes mm -hmm. it so much more interesting than just being like a descriptive line. Um, whereas, you know, some maniac yells it on stage, it's gonna be a lot more exciting than um, if it's just kind of tied into the prose poem. So once I thought of it that way, I made it, you know, kind of even more stripped down and more minimalistic. Um, and I really had the non-quoted sentences be very um, direction, direction driven. Um, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, this is still a collection of prose poetry, but I tried really hard to have almost like Adventure Time or some of these cartoons where they seem like standalone episodes. And then the more you watch Steven Universe, another one, the more you watch, um, they kind of have these little through lines or little connections. So I love the idea of like a one act stage play happening, a character getting covered in paint or getting the shit beat out of him. And then the next one act stage play, which you think is a standalone, he's like still recovering from the previous one. You know, he's a little bit bruised. and He's kind of like looking back, like what the hell just happened? But it's a completely new story, you know? Mm -hmm. So by the end of these plays, I want like their wardrobes to be completely tattered, completely beaten to hell, um, while also trying to like act like it's still a one-off little standalone thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely concept driven, definitely tried to box myself in with that on stage. And I think it was 2018 when I wrote that first one. Um, and it was actually on the back of a receipt at brunch. I was with my partner and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this idea. Give me the receipt. And I wrote it like really rapidly on the back. Um, and I used it as a bookmark for a long time, kind of just kickstarting this idea <laughs> um, of having these tiny little stage plays. And, you know, you mentioned paring it down and I think about the book and it's interesting to me that you paring it down, I think gives it more dimension. Like it feels like you're using the space mm. of a theater, like, cause the audience is a part of the, of the book and becomes part of some of the plays um, or they're mentioned. Um, you know, there's the thing in the, in the front of the book that mentions like the director and, and you know, the, the people involved in the play and it starts to feel like you're using that theater space, but it's almost counterintuitive that to create that dimension you take out, right. you know, it's not adding the dimensions in, it's pulling things away to create the, I guess, contrast of space. Am I? No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like chiseling away to make it so crystalline that it's like, okay, this isn't too chaotic. There's not so much going on. Um, but yeah, I think there's enough weird things going on that you're kind of like looking over your shoulder, waiting for someone to like die in the crowd or, a ghost to appear out of nowhere you know i like a lot of like constantly trying to surprise myself so obviously um hopefully surprising the reader as well um but there was a lot of books around that time um there's a great um i think it's kind of um on hiatus right now called plays inverse a great indie press um, um inverse being like inverted inverse but mm -hmm. plays inverse very clever 
Um, and all of their stuff really toes the line between like, okay, this is actually a prose poem, even though it's being pitched as a play, or it'll say scene and it'll just be a prose poem. You're like, okay, mm. this wouldn't translate at all. Um, so I started going through their catalog, like really, really um, rapidly, rapidly, ravenously, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, around that same time. And I think that really inspired a lot of it too. Um, Dalton Day has a book with them um, called Exit Pursued. That is a huge inspiration. And a lot of that is very, um, yeah, standalone pitched as a prose poem, but it's kind of in brackets and there's a lot of stage directions and plays. And I think they're coming out with another book later this year uh, of similar stage plays. Um, um, that was a huge inspiration at the time. Um, Mary Zimmerman has this book called, actually I just have it next to me because I knew I'd forget the title, The Secret in the Wings. And this one took a lot of like old folklore and fairy tales. And then Rather than having them kind of sit on their own and stand on their own, she started just to like blend and mesh all of them together. Um, she does another one similar like that with um, Arabian Nights and A Thousand and One Nights, um, where it's kind of just like a psychedelic hallucinatory blender mode of all these different little tiny folkloric side stories and stuff like that. So I really took inspiration from those kind of um, poetic renditions of theater, I guess. I mean, I don't have any like theater background or any super interested in theater, but it was my first time really reading stage plays and really reading like, um, yeah, poetic prose blocks, I guess, that are pitched mm -hmm. as stage directions. Let me ask you a question that might sound weird until you understand why I'm asking it, but did you go to the circus a lot as a kid? Or <laughs> is the circus important to you in any way? That's or hysterical. Because, because, you know, when I think of the theater and you're talking about these elements of absurdism, it's conjuring in my mind now. I don't think I realized it when I was reading it. It's kind. It's conjuring the theater of a circus, in a way. Is that is that resonant to you, or is or does that sound a little insane? That's amazing. It's. I almost wish that I went to the circus more as a kid. Um, but it was uh -huh. always that. I think. I think just the idea of the circus is kind of a great way to describe what I try to cover on the page. Like I try to have it be entertaining and maybe serious when it needs to be or death defying if it needs to be. But at the end of the day, it's always a little bit absurd, a little bit slapstick. Um, you got a little bit of a smirk. I'm not taking myself too seriously. Um, someone's arm could fall off at any point and then, you know, they could laugh about it later or something like that. You know, I'm constantly trying to be in that really weird space. Um, but we mentioned chapbooks and then I kind of glanced right over it. So um, I wrote a chapbook that was inspired by all of these old uh, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s circus movies because that was kind of the peak entertainment at the time. They were always coming to town. Um, so there were so many circus movies around that era when films were first being made. So I started going through all these old movies and if I couldn't find them or if I couldn't find the trailer, I would pull their Wikipedia synopsis um, practice erasure on the synopsis and then I would put it into like um, Google Translate where I would just throw it into like seven different languages, put it back yeah. into my email and then I would kind of tinker with that paragraph and try to make my own version of the story. Um, so it has these circus elements and these circus terminology but it's nothing like the synopsis of the movie. I'm just kind of using that as the text. Um, so that was released through Dark Hour Books pickpocket the big top uh -huh. um, okay. and there was just 50 copies they're all sold um, I think they might still be on Etsy um, but a very limited little run and that was all circus focused so I think I've always kind of had that interest I have another manuscript of circus poems that are kind of just sitting on ice um, and I used to work at the Children's Museum while I was in college um, right after Olive Garden before Peace Corps and um, when I was working there, they had a carousel. It was Indiana's largest carousel, longest active carousel. So I, I learned how to juggle um, during when we had to work during those sets or during those half days or whatever, um, entertaining kids that are going around a carousel and they're very exhausted parents. Um, so I was yeah, 21, 22, kind of working inside this strange, magical Indiana's largest children's museum with this carousel. And it's like a very circusy. Um, we have to go through a hall of mirrors to get there. It's very... Um, yeah, just magical for kids, especially. So from there, I started really, you know, I was going back to reading like old Roald Dahl books and I was reading Lemony Snicket for the first time. And I think all of that kind of goes into effect with my current writing where it's um, heavily inspired around that around that time. Yeah, I feel like we've really unearthed something. <laughs> Maybe the, the question I'm most proud of not yes. preparing and asking in the history of this podcast. Amazing. So now I have to, I have to quit all of my jobs and uh, join the circus. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mentioned uh, sound before, you know, also, you know, your big imagination. I think of um, the reason to read your work is for joy and pleasure. I think it's a lot of what makes it and a lot of what you receive out of it. Like that's a big focus. I guess my question is like, in, in a way, like 
how much like when you're writing in the process of your writing like how much does sound dictate your choices like above everything else and then like what else in addition to sound maybe dictates some of your imaginative choices do you think i think sound largely dictates everything maybe just end with i think sound largely <laughs> dictates <laughs> mm-hmm. um and that's usually the way that i get on the page i'll think of an interesting line or somebody will say something and i'll be like oh that's a really interesting sentence or that's really strange or i'll be reading something and i'll write that down um or i think i'm also on the other side of the, of the spectrum there's also very image driven where i'll see something or i'll see an image or an image will be in my head and i'll be like okay i have to lead with that um where the other day I was looking through Twitter and there was a picture and like the quick glancing, I thought it was a piano in a field and I clicked on it and it was two cows sitting on a tire, like this huge industrial tire, but like quick glancing, I thought it was a piano. So obviously the first line is I I thought it was a piano in the field, but it was actually two cows on a tire. So from there, I'm like, okay, this is cool. Let's see what we can do. Um, So if it's either an image or a line um, that I pull from, almost always the second line that follows that or the next line is going to be language focused. I'm like, okay, how can I make this a tongue twister? How can I slip myself up? How can I surprise myself? Um, Yeah, I really try to work on like having a lot of internal rhyme and a little bit of, I don't want to say nursery rhyme style, but I'm constantly in my head like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I almost always land on a single syllable. It's like a really problem I have of mine. I have to land flat. And then he da 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 And I can't have like a long final word. For some reason, my brain like doesn't handle that well. But very focused on the language and the process. But I also want the image to be really striking. And I think if I ever get too strange with the line, I do try to dial it back and be like, okay, what's the actual image here? What does that look like? If this sentence doesn't make too much sense, I'll put it in a different folder of ones I probably won't submit. I have this trilogy of manuscripts called Clocks and it's all just like nonsense prose poems. And I'm not sure if I'll ever send that out, but that's kind of like, okay, this is going over to Clocks. This one's a little bit too wild. Um, mm-hmm. So I do try to have a little bit of narrative and let that be the focus. Um, but I'm kind of all over the place when it comes to that. But yeah, largely that first line or that first time on the page is largely um, focused on the language or, oh, okay, wow, this sounds really cool. Um, my first book that I came out with, the original title was Flimsy Chimney. And I didn't even have a book ready. I was just like, that sounds like a really cool name for a book. And it ended up being a section in the book and one of the titles um, but just having that flim chim, flimsy chimney, like that in my head was like the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's always going to be um, a fixation that I have. Yeah. It's interesting to think like when you, I'm saying you, when I, or when someone, when I, I guess, read imaginative work, you know, usually my instinct is to go, you know, how did they think of that? Like, where did that come from? Or when I, I, you know, I, I do the writing I do now, but I actually come from more of like when I started writing more of like imaginative and like fabulism, I guess, for lack of other term really to right. call it. But I think what I, you know, was maybe trying like in my head, what I was trying to do was to invent things that other people couldn't have invented, right? Like it's, a, it had like a unique a, a product of a, a unique imagination. Um, but it's interesting. I don't think I was ever very good at it. Um, and it's interesting to think about that those things in the book that I might go, well, how did his mind think of that? Well, the answer is, oh, well, the language did it. And, you know, it's like you didn't actually think of that image right, right. outright. Like you didn't pull the image out. You did something with language and it created that image. So that like, it's interesting to think how the more abstract, absurd, imaginative things are actually maybe nuts and bolts done in that sentence. Right, right. Yeah, I think I almost never know where I'm going. And if I do, I get bored and I move on to something else. I like have to shock myself or surprise myself or see where that next line is going to go. Um, there was a line I wrote recently and it was something of like, the king eats the people. Um, and I was just like, the king, king eats, eats people. And it was kind of like, e, 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 you know, the king mm-hmm. eats the people. And that was just like, okay, that's cool. I didn't know what he was going to do. I wrote down king. I didn't know that he was going to eat. I didn't know he was going to eat people. Um, but once <laughs> it was done, I was like, cool, that's awesome. King eating mm-hmm. people. That sounds accurate, you know? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think very driven by like that internal rhyme or what it sounds like, or what it sounds like rolling off the tongue. 
And I'm sure if there was a therapist in the house, they would say that stems back from me listening to the heavy hip hop at the early ages, you know, really looking at the lyrics on Rap Genius. Or back in the day, it was like azlyrics.com I would go to and just learn all these rap lines. And I think those tongue twisters or that internal rhyme or those really impressive, like, um, I guess I don't do double entendres too much, but just that really impressive wordplay that rappers would do um, when I was finding out about music at that age, you know, 14, 15, 16, while the Flaming Lips and the Mars Volta are also having these strange, surreal lyricism and stuff. I'm sure that's where it all stems from. Um, but I really try to, yeah, I think I just try to shock myself. And if it sounds cool, then I'd really try to lean into that direction. Mm. And so... Oh, and sorry, book, I don't, I don't yeah. want to cut you off, but I meant to mention earlier. So I, I've listened on this podcast and you had mentioned how, yeah, like you said, you're doing fabulism earlier and now you've done a little bit more nonfiction and essay work and you found it very like opening and like enjoyable. Um, and I feel like I've almost had the opposite where I was doing a lot of like journalism and you know, nonfiction stuff. And it was kind of like, all right. And then once I started to find this world of like, I can lie on this in this story and I can make up something that was like, holy cow, completely opening. Um, huh. But I still struggle with the autobiographical and writing about myself, um, which, yeah, maybe someday I'll open that up as well. Mm. Well, in a way you do, because I read the right. notes in your first <laughs> book. And we'll talk about that. Um, Actually, let's just let's just go to the first book. I'll, <laughs> I was going to ask about it. I'll ask it later. Um, so the first full length that came out, which was kind of the, toward the end of last year, right? Right. Yeah. November twenty twenty two. Yep. And this was with OK Donkey. This was no further than the end of the street. These are poems that take place in and or embody or build this little neighborhood or this, I guess, little street. <laughs> uh, the street, I guess, in the neighborhood. Um, and you mentioned like at the end of that book that the that the poems are for and after or in conversation with uh, or character or characters of your relationship with your spouse and that that is such like an animating force of the book so i guess tell me a little bit about you know that book i guess give it a little context um you know how that one came about and a little bit of process kind of like we talked about the other but then i'd love to hear about you know this portion of it like how you're taking this important relationship in your life and then using it to create things that are reflective of it to you you know that right, right? but it's not legible to others and doesn't need to be yeah, I guess once you once you put it that way, I guess I am writing about the autobiographical <laughs> quite often. <laughs> but yeah, skewing it enough that it doesn't really appear, um, it can't be boxed in as nonfiction. Um, but I guess Autofocus is also posting interesting stuff like that, where it's towing the line between being fiction and nonfiction and autobiographical and surreal. Um, so it's really fun to have that that through line. So um, yeah, with my first book, um, I guess a similar process to what I was doing with Cardboard Clouds. It was just a bigger world that I was trying to make. But I was trying to have, yeah, everything takes place on a single street. I tried to box myself in and have that restraint. Um, so if Cardboard Clouds is the stage, then no farther than the end of the street is a street, um, given the title. And it was just a matter of being cooped up in quarantine, looking over all of these drafts and all these snippets and all these vignettes that I had. And I just sent emails to myself when I write poems. So I'm just going through my inbox and it's just dense and there's so many pieces to go through um, and I usually get intimidated and I'm like oh I don't even want to look at those first drafts but because we were home for so long I finally got to go through all those which was great um, and then I would just throw them into folders okay this one's really critical of corporate America let's put it in that one okay this one is very focused on the library it was written in the library let's put it in that one um, this one is about kind of my childhood let's put it in that one and as that's happening, I had all these pieces that are like, okay, this is domestic life. This feels like a Russell Edson poem. This takes place on a street um, or a lot of interactions with neighbors um, or roommates, all that kind of stuff. And as that folder continued to build, I really saw that kind of through line of like, okay, um, my partner and I got our place together, I think, yeah, 2018, it would have been around that same time. Um, so a lot of those domestic stories are kind of just like living with someone for the first time, settling down, I guess, um, and having those little funny kind of um, like slapstick, almost like sitcom situations where I'm kind mm -hmm. of like poking fun or, you know, um, yeah, just having those playful like 
ways to pass the time. There's a lot of poems in that first book where um, the two characters are trying to like go viral online by just doing really weird things in their house or um, you know plucking out their eyes so that they can get more subscribers. And all those things, I just felt like it was a mixture of like being cooped up for too long, living mm-hmm. with someone for the first time, figuring out, you know, a long-term relationship and also trying to like have fun on the page and surprise myself a little bit. So obviously there's a lot of things that happen on the, in that book that are not real, but yeah, the slivers are almost always kind of starting from some type of truth. Or um, I literally looked out my window one time and somebody was chainsawing the tree right outside our, of our apartment. And that's one of the pieces you're like, just trying to get some work done. You look out the window and someone's chainsawing. You're like, I didn't order anybody to chainsaw my tree. What the hell is going on? You know? Um, <laughs> so from there, that's kind of a, a large crux. But I think, yeah, I think with Cardboard Clouds, I think they both started right around the same time. It was just a matter of kind of throwing stuff into different folders. Um, but Cardboard Clouds, I, th- I tried to box myself and um, put myself in even smaller of a container, um, mm-hmm. whereas no farther than the end of the street, if I really wanted something in there, um, like there was a piece that was published in OK Donkey where um, somebody is working a kiosk at the airport. And I worked one day at the Children's Museum kiosk at the Indianapolis airport. And I was never asked back because I didn't make any sales. Um, and I, I was just kind of watching people come and go and hug goodbye and cry when they got reunited. And that was very inspirational for this piece. And I wanted that one in the book, but it made no sense to have it when I'm just having this boxed in neighborhood area. Um, so I was like, okay, let's just have their backyard, have a tarmac, and then they have an airport. Um, so mm-hmm. I kind of like, if I really wanted something to go in that world, I can make it happen. There was a bunch of whales. I put them in the backyard. Um, so the street was kind of endless in that sense where I could do whatever I wanted. Um, but I still tried to box myself in and kind of have like a Truman Show or Pleasantville or huge inspirations where it's like, you can't go beyond the street. Like we're in this TV show, we're stuck. Or Truman Show, you know, we're in this huge globe. And once you get to the end of the ocean, there's a wall. Um, so I like, I, I love that kind of, uh, yeah, boxed in. It makes me not run wild. And so I guess the difference between this, um, this book and the new book is that it does use the pronoun I, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's not, it's not you. And I, we just talked about how, you know, maybe it comes from you. But that's one of the reasons I think the, the, the books have a different feel. They also, in this way, have a similar feel. In the in the in the way that they use language as a mo- an animating force, and the way they're in a way concept albums. Um, the other thing that makes them feel a little different too is lineation, <laughs> and that and as you call them poems. Right. Um, so I guess if you would, I, what, I guess one question I have is um, I don't know if it's two questions or one question. You can answer it however you want. But when writing from the I and the not I, and when writing lineation and not lineation, does to you it feel like you're doing a different kind of writing, or is it always the same kind of writing and the I and the in the line break is just like a tool? Does that does that question does that make sense? What I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think yeah, I think there's so many different answers for that because I think the way that I approach each piece might be different. So whether or not I start from the I and the you, um, or at the very last minute I changed them from he and she to I and you, um, I think it's all different. But with that first book, once I figured out that I wanted to have I and you, I had a lot of little domestic neighborhood poems and stuff um, with characters or with various people or with various names, or they were in third person. And I switched everything to keep that con- that continued I and you. Um, and yeah, kind of just, I've always, you know, I feel like we were told not to write like that at a certain age, like don't have you, it feels too like Tumblr journaly, but I really like the idea of just talking directly to somebody. I think everyone's debut book, not everyone's, but debut books tend to have that eye where it's like, oh, his first book he's writing about himself. This is his autobiography. This is the origin. Um, So yeah, I don't know. It almost felt like a direct address or like an open letter or almost like documenting what I'm seeing in my home and then kind of talking about it that sense. with cardboard clouds, I didn't feel like any of that stuff was too um, autobiographical, really. I felt like it was just like, okay, we're gonna be on stage. There's gonna be this old beat up car. There's gonna be this weird cloud. There's gonna be a panther that walks across the stage. Um, and it didn't feel very realistic for, for my own personal experiences. So 
from there, I never felt the urge or the need to really add that I. And I was like, okay, let's just keep it open-ended. Um, and then all along at the same time, I was writing this manuscript called Borscht, which is still very much in progress and kind of sitting on ice. Um, and that book, the word I is not in the book at all. Um, I wanted to do the complete opposite of No Farther Than the End of the Street. It's all very um, like folkloric fairy tales. Um, so I wanted to have that whole voice of like, and then there was the butcher and the man. And he, once upon mm -hmm. a time, um, have that old man by the fireside who's not including anything about himself at all. He's just telling you this old, this timeless fable. Um, so when I had that kind of division, I was like, okay, this is the I book. This is the not I book. Um, Cardboard Clause is kind of in the, in the middle of those two. But um, Borscht and No Farther Than the End of the Street were really um, being worked at at the same time. Um, and then as I was doing that, I was just having these little on stage, on stage, on stage. And then I didn't even realize it, but those were really accumulating kind of off to the side. Um, and, you know, four years later, five years later, here we are. Yeah. Um, now we'll finally get to the concept of the thing. I was like threading it through. Right. <laughs> now we can actually talk about it. So, you know, both of them are like the books are made of pieces and the pieces are all unified. And I think it's pretty clear that that came from obviously, right? Like, listening to music obviously from from reading as well um but for you like do you like do you see yourself ever making a collection of just like things or do you feel like for you like every book like part of that animating force is i'm making a thing that like i guess that constraint like do you feel that a book to you, like when you think of, I'm going to make a book that the book has to have that concept embedded for you to like make it feel like a done thing? You know, do you ever see yourself just like writing a bunch of stuff over a few years and being like, okay, I'm going to collect them. And these are my chronology from these years. Or to you, is that just like, that's not a book, right? <laughs> you know, in the way that I think of it. I think, yeah, I think I really, I don't know if I struggle with it or I excel in that, but I need that concept or that story or that through line to be like, okay, this is where I'm going with this. This is what's happening here. Um, but as that's been happening, I've done that. I mean, the amount of manuscripts I have on my desktop, it's unhealthy. Um, a lot of them are <laughs> in progress or they're 250 pages of nonsense. You know, I have so many different little scraps and ideas, but almost always I'm looking for that concept. I'm looking for that story. Um, I have a manuscript called Checked Out that all takes place in my library. Every single story has a call number and a Library of Congress call number attached to it, and it's fully in the library. So no different than No Farther Than the End of the Street that's on a street. This one's all in a library. Um, I have one called Gosh that is fully focused on questioning God and religion and faith. Um, but as these have been happening, you know, um, my friend, the poet, Canadian poet Stuart Ross, had a tweet a while ago, and he was like, how come there's all these project books, and how come people have to have a through line? Why can't they just throw together a folder and make a book? Um, so I DM'd him and I was like, how do I do that? I was like, I want to do that so badly. I don't want to be, you know, tied into this constraint and have to make this thing happen. Why can't I just have like a best of Ben, you know, and my brain, <laughs> my brain couldn't handle that, you know, or like a selected or collected. And he told me just to not think about ordering, um, and just pick the, your favorite ones and just put them together and don't worry about this one doesn't bleed into the next one very well, or this uses I, and this uses he, and like, you know, all those things. Um, so I did start assembling one and it's called Moths Don't Cough. And they're all hopefully non-connected, just one-offs. Um, but they also don't use I at all. So I'm not quite sure if I followed the rules, but they're all third person, like little narrative, tiny poem stories. Mm -hmm. um, but that's my first attempt at not being like, okay, this one has to be the final poem. This one has to be in the middle. This is the interlude. Okay, I need to explain what's going on here. I have to have this thing happen. Um, it's really just kind of thrown into a folder. Um, but I do want to send it to Stuart one day and be like, did I do a good enough job? Because like, please help me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, too, I'm too boxed in by the concept. But right. I think I also thrive in that concept setting where it's a little bit more, I can see where the finish line is and I can see what it looks like. And I also, it helps me know where it needs work and what's struggling. Or if I'm telling the same story twice and if that needs to be one piece or one of them has to be removed, mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing as well. Yeah, it's like, uh, I guess what it provides is an organizing principle in which there feel like there are answers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Where you could be like, oh yeah, but well, that makes sense. Right. Uh, as a, you know, the other, I mean, the, collecting it the other way, I guess like as a, as a folio or like a chronology, I mean, that has an implicit logic, but right. it's almost like maybe 
maybe because it doesn't feel hard <laughs> you're like well i can't just get away with that now right. can i but yeah yeah you totally can that is also a book <laughs> <laughs> it's like wait a minute Many this is have. uh yeah it's like i don't know when to finish or when it's you know closed and done does that mean when i get to 50 poems or when i get to 100 pages or what does that mean you know um, yeah when but, do i cut this off at right. what year do i say right. this is over it's still i guess in a way it is still a concept it's right. like still you can, whatever way you slice it it's still creating a box right right of some kind yeah um so this book no further than the industry was published by okay donkey and you had mentioned you published with them early and the new book is published by x-ray and it's their first book Right. And you had mentioned that you published with them early. So I wonder if you would talk about kind of the road to publication on both of these. Um, was I, I imagine it is you developed a editorial relationship uh, from submitting to the Lit Mag and probably multiple times. And then either you submitted or were solicited for a book. And yeah, what was it? What was it like trying to get these out? Yeah, I think with. Yeah, I think both of them with OK Donkey and with X-Ray, I think they came up around the same time. It had to have been 2017, 2018. Um, and that was when I was first published with both of them. Um, with OK Donkey, I think now they actually published some pieces from Cardboard Clouds. I think there's been four publications over there, maybe three. And then I have three as well over at X-Ray. And they've just been kind of over the years. Um, Bud Smith posted one of the very first stories in X-Ray. And I was like, oh, this is a really cool new journal. Bud Smith is in there. This is awesome. Um, and from there, they were kind of on my radar. And when OK Donkey started, it was the kind of same thing. It's like, oh, these people are willing to be a little bit quirky, a little strange. Um, they're OK with something under 500 words. It's not too long. Um, and, and that was kind of when I was really in that submittable wormhole, trying to find new journals, trying to see what sticks. Um, and yeah, it must have been about two years later for OK Donkey, where they were having open submissions for their next poetry manuscript. They do a great job of every other year they do poetry. And then every other year they do short story or flash or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think they just, yeah, they just did a short story collection and then they'll be doing poetry next year. So they were doing open submissions for poetry and I got like a really encouraging rejection saying like, you know, we really like this book. It just isn't quite the right fit. You know, this came down to like a final judgment call since they can only pick one each year. Um, totally cool. Totally understandable. And then I want to say like a year later or a year and a half later, um, and this is after Todd Dillard, who was helping out at the time, was like, I really loved your manuscript. I was you know, a total champion for it. Like, so it came so close to the finish line, it just didn't happen. Um, and then about a year and a half later, they messaged me and like, hey, like one of those, like you up? <laughs> it was kind of like, it was like, is that manuscript still around? Is it still available? And I was like, absolutely, it's still here. Um, so that came really organically and they kind of, it must've just stayed on their mind or they knew that it was a possibility. Um, so that was really exciting. And then with X-Ray, it was much of the same thing. Crow slid in my DMs years ago, like 2021. And he said, like, we're looking for stuff right around like 90 pages. Do you have anything? Um, we're really interesting in launching the physical press. Um, and at the time, I was like, no, I don't. But I have these stage plays. So give me a month and I'll send them over. And then I did. And then six months went by and I checked in on them. And then another year went by and like, OK, we're finally going to release our first book. We're finally getting this off the ground. Um, but that early seed was planted pretty, pretty interestingly, where it was just kind of like, we're looking for stuff. If you have anything, um, would love to make it happen. So I think they're hoping to turn this into a series and have one or two books a year moving forward. Um, but this was kind of their first attempt at something that they, uh, enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, very interesting, interesting organic processes with both of them. I didn't, wasn't, uh, too involved in like the editorship or helping out, but it was always just, you know, keeping in contact and keeping, keeping, uh, on good terms with them and seeing what they're what they're open to. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's inter. You know, you mentioned like the book was rejected, and then you got a message back. I, I've actually, I not with a book, but I've done that with a, a lit mag as well. I mean, it does happen. Editors make mistakes and don't often realize it until later. At least with me, there was a. It was very early on. In the press a piece came in, and I, I really liked it. But I was like, well, I kind of. I mean, I've, you maybe you could do. You know this thing with it and then i just kept like found myself thinking about the original piece quite often and i was like i'm a fucking idiot. 
And I like, you know, I need it swallow- back. Swallowed my pride and sent the email. I was like, I was wrong. Nice. <laughs> I mean, I told you this piece was amazing when I rejected it, but I'm an idiot. And <laughs> please let me have it. Then I solicited them again later. Now they're working with autofocus. So you never know what happens. It's true. <laughs> when you <Yeah>. get <laughs> rejected. Yeah. Um, it's funny but, though, because yeah. enough time had passed from the time that I got that rejection to the time that they asked for it again, that it was a completely different book. So mm. I was kind of like a little preface. I was like, I've worked on this probably hundred different edits since you turned me down because I thought I needed work. Um, so I almost like, like I was saying, throwing things into folders, I'd almost split off into two different manuscripts. Um, so like, okay, send us what you're working on right now, send us both of them. So they ended up choosing this one. Um, and then it was actually shorter. I had about like 250 pieces initially. And then I trimmed it down to like 70, I think that I sent over to them. And they're like, usually our poetry collections are a little bit longer. So I ended up adding 30 more. I like wrote 15 extra ones. Um, so it's really interesting process of like, here's what they were first interested in. Here's what it looks like now. Let's beef that up a little bit. Let's trim that down. Um, a lot of back and forth edits, which was really cool. And then with cardboard clouds, it was almost from the time that I submitted to the time to the thing that it looks like now is very similar. We just added the, the cloud illustrations uh, from my friend Matt Shu to kind of break it up nicely. Um, the section breaks were first published over at Maudlin House, and that was before I knew it was going to be cardboard clouds. I was just working on a uh, a workshop with Tyler Barton with bending uh, bending genres, and the idea was to like just provide like a guide to something that you think is like scientifically interesting. It was something like that. So I was like, okay, how many different types of clouds are there? What do those look like? So I pulled up this sheet. Um, so I just tried to like explain each type of different cloud before I was even writing about stage plays or anything like that. And then I kind of used that to break it up into different chapters. Um, but from the thing that I sent to X-ray to the thing that's being released in physical copy, there's maybe like one or two move arounds or one or two additional poems, but it's almost pretty similar to what I sent. Um, which is interesting. There are always different beasts in right. <laughs> these books. Whereas OK Donkey was a lot yeah. of minority report moving uh-huh. the screens. Yeah. I'm working with an author I've worked with previously and like the difference between working on the first book and the second book is just like it's it just seems completely different. Like oh, wow. the whole like the anyway. Um but yeah, it's just to speak to you know, the same writer. <laughs> right. <laughs> different books, completely <laughs> different, you know, uh feedback and thinking anyway um, yeah it's like you have a different passion for it i feel like with cardboard clouds because i didn't have that autobiographical connection um if somebody was like we got to delete this one and this one needs to be moved that didn't really happen um but i think i would have less passion i'd be like okay fine that makes sense (laughs) Um, with no farther the end of the street i'm like this has to tie into this we need to have the flood at the end of the book or this needs to happen you know um so yeah that's kind of interesting i think i would have stuck to my guns a little bit more with no farther we didn't really run into those problems um, but cardboard clouds, I think I have less attachment to the characters. It was more of like, yeah, almost like a sitcom. Like, how can I make fun of these characters? But I'm also not like super deeply emotionally attached to them, right? You can turn off the TV and you're not thinking about uh, trying to give really bad. You're not thinking about the characters of Cheers right. uh, later that night, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, Terrible uh, example of a very outdated sitcom. <laughs> not a bad one. <laughs> yeah, not a bad one. Um, uh, you mentioned, you know, tons of projects on the computer. Um, I'm, you have a lot of things. Are you working on something specifically now or are you someone who just like always has a bunch of things in process or are you like you work on something for the most part and then there's just a lot of things you've made? Um, yeah, it's a lot of kind of um, tunnel vision focus on a certain project and then I get exhausted or overwhelmed and have to sit back and put it um, back in the desktop for a little bit and not look at it. Um, other times I'm kind of just multitasking and going through a bunch and going through my inbox, putting into different folders. Um, we talked about the circus earlier. So I like noticed this through line. Okay, that's a circus poem. That's a circus poem. So I just have a document called Circus WTF. And I didn't even think it would be anything. And now it's 74 pages. So just like I throw these little poems in there and those, those are all terrible first drafts. I haven't gone through any of those, worked on those. Um, I just tend to accumulate once I kind of find my obsessions. Mm. So it'll be a matter of like throwing those in for three, four, five, six, seven, eight months. And then I'll spend like a month like, okay, this is circus month. I'm going to go in and look mm-hmm. at all these. I'm going to print them out. I'm going to get my red pen. Um, so I tend to do that where I'm like juggling, juggling, and then I'll like jump over to one and really give it some love when I know that it's close enough to have that attention. Um, yeah, I mentioned the checked out one earlier with the library that kind of got a little, little bit of my attention earlier this year, like in the spring. Um, I submitted the Borscht one that I mentioned, this folkloric fairy tale book. I submitted that to FC2 and got like a really nice, encouraging rejection, kind of saying like, we'd love to see more of your stuff in the future. 
Um, this one wasn't the right fit, but you know, we'd love to keep in conversation. So that's another one where like, I know it needs a little bit of work. I know I've totally agreed with what they were saying with the criticism, but it's one of those where, like, to go back in and open that book and look at that manuscript again, I'm like, I don't ever want to look at that again. Uh. Um, so I see myself getting inspired in like the dead of winter and be like, okay, let's look yeah. at Borscht, let's see what we can do. Um, but after getting that kind of rejection, it's like, this one has to sit on the side for a little bit before I can be like, you get that, you get that, you get that email in the inbox, you're not gonna open up it, start editing your poems right. right afterwards. It's like, okay, let me take a few steps back. Let me focus on these weird erasures mm-hmm. to kind of take my brain off of it. Um, so I do a lot of that where I'm juggling, 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 and then I'll jump over um, and be like, okay, this is cardboard clouds month or, okay, they're actually asking for the final PDF. I need to get this in. Um, or um, phonograph has that new imprint bunny. Jeff Allison Drell, has been a great guest host on this show. So shout out to him. Um, but they just had a little chapbook um, opening. So I like set some erasures aside. I was like, okay, I want to focus on this. The deadline um, was earlier this week. So I was like, I got, got to get those in. So a lot of times it'll be prefaced by a deadline or just me realizing, okay, this document is getting close to hundred pages. Let's go in there and see what works. And sometimes that means, you know, cutting it all in half and realizing it's two books or deleting the whole thing and realizing it's not a fit or really being like, damn, this is close to finish. Okay. This is cool. Yeah. Um, it's kind of across the board with, uh, with my writing, but almost always under 200 words, almost always in a prose poem block. Um, we talked about line breaks earlier. If I really like it or if it's really brief, I tend to keep, the line break, um, but almost always I get discouraged because I don't know poetry that well, and I just turn it into a prose poem. I'm like, okay, I like these sentences. I don't know enough about line breaks for this to really work. I don't want it to steal away from the story, so I'll just turn this into four sentence uh, block. Mm-hmm. So I find that happening a lot, where I get a little bit too. Uh, I don't want to say I don't have enough confidence, but I'm like, okay, this will look fine as a rectangle. I'm fine <laughs> with that. <laughs> All right, that was my conversation with Ben Nespajani. You can check out Cardboard Clouds, which is the first title from the new press at X-Ray. And you can check out No Further Than the End of the Street from OK Donkey Press. And all his other stuff at neonpajamas.com. And don't forget to check out our books, too, over at autofocuslit.com slash books. You can check out our titles, maybe grab a few. It's a great way to support the podcast. And even more so if you grab that t-shirt I mentioned for the podcast at the beginning of this show. And if you're still listening, maybe you wouldn't mind reviewing us, writing some nice words, hitting enter, and whatever app you're using. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.